Hello and welcome to The Hive Podcast, the series that inquires into our relationship with one another, with technology and with the living world. Join me, Natalie Nahai, and some wonderful guests as we explore the pressing question of how we can support one another to envision and create a more flourishing, integrative future for all. For more information on today's episode and guest, please visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. And for additional books and resources, check out natalienahai.com forward slash resources. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the show. Today, I have the treat of speaking with Dr. Roz Watts, a clinical psychologist, a mother, and a passionate nature lover. Having worked as the clinical lead for Imperial College London's pioneering psilocybin trial, and then as the clinical director at Synthesis Institute, Roz is one of the most prominent and experienced voices in the field of psychedelic research today. She has been named one of the 50 most influential people in psychedelics, and one of the top 16 women shaping the future of psychedelics, and it's her focus on integration, harm reduction and inclusion in the psychedelic space that makes Roz's work so unique in this field. With a recently published paper providing a validated scale for assessing psychological connectedness in a broad sense, Roz has designed the Watts Connectedness Scale as a clinical, practical tool for measuring our sense of connectedness to ourselves, to others and to the living world. You can check this out and find more information about it in the show notes. Now, one of the things that I find extraordinarily inspiring about Roz is her desire to help people cultivate connectedness, especially after psychedelic experiences. And it's from this place that she has created an integration community called ASA Integration, which aims to provide experiential education around how to integrate singular experiences into the wider collective and how to connect more deeply to life and one another in all our relational complexity and richness. This was one of my favourite conversations of the season so far. And whether you're interested in connecting with plants and with trees and with nature, or you're more interested in the psychedelic angle, I hope you find this conversation as uplifting and inspiring as I did. So, Roz, it's lovely to be in conversation with you. I've been looking forward to this for several weeks now. How are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thank you, Natalie. Thank you for having me. I've been looking forward to it a lot as well. (laughs) So I want to dive in the deep end and ask you, from whatever perspective you'd like to approach this question, what do you think is going on in the global human psyche right now? Oh, wow. Getting straight (laughs) in there. Oh, it's such um, an interesting time of, I guess, recognition, I think, of the, a situation that has been, been building for a really long time that we have been in a way, I think, quite blinkered to for a long, long time. And it feels like now the, the blinkers are really falling off and there's a real recognition of the insufficiency of the current systems, yeah, the, the need for a, a deep, deep new way and a, a complete re- rehaul and restructure of the way we live. Hmm. And I think it's it feels quite painful to a lot of people because the, the timing of it, the recognition of, you know, those blinkers falling away and that deep kind of knowing that's coming in um, seems to be coinciding with the sense of not having that much time to make the necessary changes. So I think it's it's a time of despondency for many people and a lot of hopelessness. And I think that for people who are have maybe been recognising the need for change and some of the, the flaws of our kind of current system for a long time, there may be some sense of... Um, you know, having some sense of what we're working towards or moving towards. But for a lot of people, I think there is this a sense of powerlessness of just sudden like, whoa, it's all breaking mm. and not really a sense of hopefulness or a sense that things can be any different. So I think overall, it's a time of despair for a lot of people. So thinking about that, I mean, that leads in 
really beautifully to a lot of the work that you're doing in terms of how we can peer into the jaws of despair and what we can Mm. do to move through it or to work with it to come to a place of greater flourishing. Um, So you you led a clinical trial of a phase two psilocybin study looking at major depression at Imperial College. And you've worked as clinical director at a psychedelic retreat centre called the Synthesis Institute. And you're now pioneering ACER, which we will come to shortly. But before we dive into the work that you're doing, can you tell us about what led you down this path in the first place? Yeah, and certainly um, I'm still kind of reflecting on, on that amazingly powerful first question you asked me and kind of how how the two things are linked, like that experience of um, that, that feeling of where we are um, as a society right now and, and the role that psychedelic therapy might play and why I was really drawn to it. And I think when I first came to it, um, I certainly wasn't in any way consciously aware that it was some, it, it could hold potentially some part of a puzzle for cultural renewal and reshaping our, the way we live and our communities. But through doing the work, I, I certainly have um, a sense now that that is perhaps possible. And that was maybe the unconscious um, pull towards the work. But actually, when I first came to it, it was, um, you know, as, as these things often do, it just felt like a kind of coincidence, really, um, in that I was working as a clinical psychologist in the National Health Service in the UK. And I was finding that, you know, I really loved working in the NHS. It's an amazing, amazing organisation. But I was also really aware that we had very long waiting lists. We were only offering like a few sessions of talking therapy. And it felt like a really quite kind of blunt instrument, considering the needs of the people we were serving. And the overwhelming needs really and you know like really just I mean people often use the analogy of like sticking plasters to to deal with deep deep wounds and that is what it what it felt like really so um when I went on maternity leave I suddenly had some time to kind of read and reflect and sit and I was kind of bathed in all the kind of oxytocin hormones and feeling quite (laughs) kind of um kind of connected to things and I a friend of mine had suffered really badly from from depression and when we were younger and she'd been to Peru to have an ayahuasca ceremony that had really helped her depression mm-hmm. so when i had time off breastfeeding and sitting sitting around in coffee shops with lots of time <laughs> uh, unlike being in the nhs where you don't have any time when you at the end of the day you're just so exhausted you don't have really time to you know read papers or watch talks necessarily you're just totally you know totally tired but I had a bit of time. And so I read this, having to find this article online about psilocybin therapy for depression. And it reminded me of what my friend had told me about her ayahuasca uh, ceremony. And I contacted the researchers and said, you know, I've got some time off. I'm on maternity leave. Can I help? And it was one of those synchronicities. They said, you know, we need a psychologist. Can you start tomorrow? Oh, wow. And that was it. I started as a volunteer <laughs> guide. So sitting with people through their psilocybin sessions, offering them some support. And then, yeah, that was that was the beginning. Wow. And so I'd really like to dig into what you're doing now, because I think a lot of people, and understandably so, get very excited by the prospect of having psychedelic experiences and all the kind of the bells and whistles. And there is sort of this sensation, at least that I've encountered, of, of this being the new wonder drug, mm-hmm. the thing that you just, you know, do once or twice, or in some cases people kind of get trip happy and they go on a whole sequence of trips, thinking this is going to solve it all. Yeah. And... A lot of airtime, I think, is also needed to dive into the deeper question of also when you have these experiences, what then do you do? How do you participate in your own healing? How Mm. can you, you know, become accountable and responsible to your own growth? And so your work and and especially your, your work around integration and aftercare is something which I think is absolutely pioneering in this space. And so I'd love to ask you to talk a bit about the integration program ASA that you have created and maybe it's approach what ASA stands for and, and you know how it works really. Yeah, thank you. So ASA stands for Accept, Connect, Embody, Restore. And it's a model that was developed over years of working as a as a psychedelic guide in the studies and just observing many, many people going through psychedelic therapy for depression. But I know that it's, you know, the same theme comes up for psychedelic therapy for all sorts of different presenting issues. Um, People have psychedelic therapy, they have, you know, whether they go for a retreat, or they go for a psychedelic session in a trial, or whether they take psychedelics, you know, in a therapeutic way, in some other kind of context, 
um, those experiences, if safely guided, can really bring a lot of insights and a feeling of connectedness and can be really powerful. But mm. I've seen again and again, and I now really hold this as a kind of almost like a kind of gen- general law that those those experiences that it's like a real catalyst for a process it can open a door but if without the really carefully created kind of integration community and and ongoing you know not just a few weeks but really really months and months of carefully working with what you've received the ideas the insights and making changes to your life those experiences the, the the benefits are lost you know they fall away and years later people might be left with some amazing kind of learning from them but their lives won't necessarily have changed uh, there is an exception to that and I think sometimes have people have an incredibly powerful mystical experience hmm. where they suddenly see life in a completely different way and just that experience is enough of a reframe for them to you know say that it was life-changing but I'd say that is what we all kind of read about and hope will happen. But in reality, for people who have suffered with many, many years of uh, mental health difficulties, lots of um, barriers in their lives, lots of very fixed, entrenched patterns, I think having one or two psychedelic experiences does not generally lead to long-term change. It often leads to a few months of feeling more connected. But if you don't change your life, yeah, it doesn't stay. Mm. Um, so ASA was really built and created for people after having psychedelic experiences in any context for those people to engage in a a 12-month process it is actually just the beginning itself it's a 12-month process around the calendar where we have a different focus every month and it's an online community and we hope that people will follow that pattern that that kind of monthly cycle for many years afterwards so it's really a kind of like lifelong practice mm. and one of the things that i think is so interesting and perhaps unusual from a western perspective about asa is the fact that it is about community and it also weaves in strands from eco psychology and acceptance and commitment therapy so it feels like a very holistic approach to understanding how we might better you know Mm. integrate and get our needs met in relationship to others who can also share and support us why is it do you think that it's taken so long for someone and I would also add a woman to come up with a very radically different method of supporting people who've gone through these sorts of experiences Mm, wow well what a beautiful beautiful thing to say as well thank you Natalie it's lovely (laughs) And I suppose I hadn't really thought about it in that way before. But yes, I mean, oh, it it actually makes me quite emotional thinking about it because, Mm. I mean, the whole model of life, the whole way I was trained as a clinical psychologist, the whole way we kind of live, um, you know, it links back to what we were saying at the beginning about, you know, the kind of the old system is falling away and the whole individualised model of mental health and understanding people as having different pathologies I mean so in my training which I loved by the way and I was trained by amazing amazing people with an amazing cohort of people too but you know looking back on it now the training we had was this is the diagnostic statistical manual this is a list of different diagnoses and the symptoms that are linked and these are all like these are medical conditions and they all have medical treatments and you as a psychologist can offer some talking around it to help. But essentially it's that medical individualized model as if there is something that has happened inside that body or inside that mind that is faulty hmm. and needs correcting um, by some kind of thing that that body or mind can consume and will be magically healed. Hmm. And I suppose... Uh, when I when I think about what psychedelic therapy has really taught me now after I guess like six six years, so still quite new to it, but but deepening my journey with this this work um, from the perspective of somebody watching lots of people going through it and their long term journeys, that the key learning that comes from people again and again is that psychedelic therapy teaches them about interconnectedness of all things the web of life 
their connectedness to themselves, their deeper self, like kind of a soul connection, connection to other people and connection to nature. And that incredibly powerful insight that comes so often is is the central, I guess, tenet of so many different Indigenous ways of living. So many different Indigenous traditions or Indigenous peoples have had this knowing that we are an interconnected web and that this is something that those of us who have grown up in kind of modern, for example, like the, you know, modern, modern UK, it is not something that we have learned from anywhere. Mm. We have lived as disconnected units of consumers and we believe that there are individualized solutions and um, purchasable solutions to our ills. And so this coming back into this realization that actually the, the disconnection of our society and how it's no surprise that so many of us are as as suffering and miserable as we are given the disconnected way we live. So I think the, the, the point of ACER is not just to provide a safe space for people, for them to kind of find their tribe in a way, the other people that have been through it, because obviously our culture doesn't have a good awareness of plant medicines or psychedelic therapy. So they need to find other people that that do it's not just that, it's also the beginnings of, of the deeper healing. It's not just about having one session with mushrooms or with ayahuasca. It's about coming back to living in a more communal way and reframing the way we see ourselves, going from individual units with our problems and our failings to, um, you know, like trees in a forest, mm. all different shapes, some losing branches, some very spiky some with flowers that bloom some with leaves that fall some with leaves that don't all interconnected underground by this web of life and that we aren't alone and that we um, have everything we need all the all the joy that we're seeking is in that connectedness to each other and nature and ourselves that is beautiful and I love the analogy of the forest because uh, we can get so hung up on our perceived failures or not being shiny enough or beautiful enough yeah. or young enough or fit enough or able enough, you know, the list goes on. And so to kind of shift the frame and think of it in more of a kind of compassionate lens, <laughs> through more of a, a compassionate lens as we might look at a plant or a tree is, is beautiful. And actually, I'd love to just touch on briefly the um, the aspect of the meditative tree based practice mm. that you have that you include because that is so beautiful could oh. you could you talk a little bit about that oh thank you yes yeah, so uh, it's it's the the work I most love doing in in the world and it's what I yeah <laughs> it's found my joy through through this work and it's um they're guided guided imagery journeys where we we merge with the tree and there's a different tree for every month of the year. So it, it was inspired originally by the Celtic tree calendar, but has, has been revised and taken different forms and is now including trees, not just from uh, the British Isles, but also from uh, the Northern Hemisphere and hopefully will expand to the Southern Hemisphere too. But um, every month we we merge with a different tree. And so it's a guided imagery journey that we do as a community online together and then there are sharing circles for people to discuss in small groups their experience and we start off by sitting you know you choose the tree so the guided journey is set to music really beautiful bespoke music which was created for each tree by um, a musician uh, Finn Petcher who I've been working with and he has been working with an amazing vocalist as well called Sean O'Gorman and they have created these incredible soundscapes for every tree Wow. everyone very different you know the, the the music is just it's really magical and so we we kind of go towards the the area in the journey and they and um, everybody chooses the tree they imagine so for example if it was silver birches we'd be going to a birch forest and people imagine the different trees and then they choose the one that speaks to them and they go and sit at its base send a root down merge with the tree and then it's a kind of breath work practice, I would say, using the breath, using the body to really imagine the roots going down, the body as the trunk. And we meet the lessons of each different tree through the journey. So, for example, the yew tree, which is the tree for November, is all about deep rest. And in that tree, 
that one's actually a bit different. Rather than merging with the tree, people climb into the heart of an ancient 2,000-year-old yew tree into the mossy, the the kind of the mossy nest at the centre. And it's like a yoga nidra practice where they lie under the starlight and the moonlight and they absorb the healing, regenerating rays from the sky and feel the support of the mossy tree beneath them. And every every tree has a very, very different kind of journey. But what I found is that um, using the metaphor of the tree and using that as a frame enables us to really go into our deep feelings because we have the safety of that, um, of the tree, of its roots, of its anchoring, of its solidity, of its bark that keeps us safe, keeps out things that would harm us, brings in all that sustains us. And we have the sky above and the sustenance from the, the root network below. And in that way, I feel that people are able to go into deep feelings in a very, very supported and safe way, much safer than, for example, revisiting traumas on an online group, which might feel, you know, without that kind of the buffering of nature, the holding of nature might feel unsteady, but the trees support us and guide us to do some really quite deep emotional work together. This is just so exciting. I'm listening to you talk about this and it's so deeply shamanic and animist. Mm. Um, I kind of want to ask, how did you, were you gifted these journeys? So uh, it was a very interesting, so as as always, these, one of the deep kind of central tenets of Acer is about how our most painful experiences really do become our biggest treasures, mm. sometimes much later. But often in psychedelic therapy journeys, people you know, go deep into really, really, really painful places. And if they can go in and through them and feel them and allow them to guide them, then it's often those experiences of pain that really show them what they care about in their lives and help them live in a much more, well, in a way that they just feel much more closely linked to their heart and to what really matters. So we're real believers in the importance of pain as a teacher And so often, you know, we go through our own kind of initiations in this work and, you know, it was a very, very painful experience um, in the world of psychedelic therapy. And I guess in a way, my, um, I suppose, slight feeling a bit like a circular peg in a square hole in that (laughs) psychedelic science is, although it's using psychedelics, it's still very much in a system based around, um, you know, academia has its you know, academia is one of the systems that we see kind of quite toxic Mm. structures and hierarchies and power and control and the way money is central. And I think we see a lot of the, I I, I see it as kind of in in its unhealthy parts as really representing some of the systems that need to become much more. um, Kind of let go of maybe or transformed. (laughs) Yeah, and shifted into a more um, nurturing, more of a web of learning rather than a kind of hierarchical mm. structure of competition and control. Um, I think it's those hierarchies of, of competition um, and, you know, the kind of issues around power and money and resources, I think is so central to um, some of the issues that we face as a, as a culture really. Yeah. Yeah. But so I think it was a very painful experience of kind of being in psychedelic therapy and wanting to bring kind of nurturing and care and therapy and all of these um ways in but noticing that that the system wasn't really set up for that and it was it was a quite painful realization for me that yeah I couldn't I kind of couldn't continue working in that way anymore I mean I'd I'd spent so many years devoting my time to psychedelic therapy trials and really felt that my my work was going to be in psychedelic clinical trials and kind of you know really devoted a lot of personal time and so it was a painful realization that, you know, it felt like walking up to a brick wall, sudden, like all like, you know, suddenly um, your future is kind of cut off from you and you just don't know what you're going to do. Oof. So, mm. yeah, it was and it was the beginning of COVID as well. And, you know, it was a kind of COVID really brought um, a lot of turmoil to, to the, the trial I was working in and to the system. So it was a sense of like, you know, deep, deep um, time of turmoil and disruption and disconnection in our in our worlds. And suddenly my career path was disconnected. And I um, I walked out into the garden 
uh, where I was staying in COVID, which is actually where I am now. It's a beautiful place in nature. And just, I was so outraged by some of the things that had happened. Um, just that kind of like real deep, like <laughs> deep, deep rage. <laughs> and I went into the garden and I just kind of fell into this tree, mm. um, which was actually an Acer tree because it was a field maple. <laughs> so it's in the genus of Acer. It's a type of tree family. And I just wept. I wept into its roots and I just felt for the first time a connection to a tree as a being that was so old and so wise and so steady and rooted. And it was kind of through that feeling of like falling on that tree that I I kind of came back to life. It took a really long time, actually, but the he the, the tree journeys that I've written were written to heal myself. Mm-hmm. And and it just so happened that yeah, other people have found them helpful too. Beautiful. It sounds like an initiation to me. Yeah. And they're never <laughs> easy, are they? They're, you, they they nope. sound okay, but then actually when you're going through it, it's like you'd do anything not to be initiated. <laughs> yeah, that is so, it's so moving. And um, it's funny, isn't it? Because I think when when we don't really pay much mind to the plants and trees around us, they just kind of, we, we almost treat them as though they're furniture or buildings that they're quite static we don't see them move in the way that humans and other mammals move and zip around or birds or reptiles for that matter and yet when we take the time to slow down it's often then that we have the opportunity to actually meet and so maybe this is a nice time to ask you about your what's connectedness scale and Mm. the story around that because this is another thing that I think that I've been very inspired about by your story is um the way in which, and this is possibly a tangent, but I think it's important to include, the way in which historically when we look at the contributions that people have made, very few enjoy the spotlight of visibility. And so I think it's incumbent upon <laughs> those of us who might not want to put our heads above the parapet to say, no, no, I'm going to name this thing, yes. honestly, <laughs> yes, yes. to make sure that we're paving the way for others to do the same. And so... Yeah. You know, I want to open this this sort of question by saying a thank you to Aww. you to actually naming <laughs> and you. making yourself visible so that more of us can do the same. So it's the What's Connectedness Scale, and I'd love you to tell us what it is and how it works and why it's so vital right now. Thank you. Um, <laughs> and yes, I'm glad you gave it that, that caveat because it is something that um, is, yes, as, as I think... Naming a naming a psychometric measure after yourself is very much of the old way of the kind of, you know, in, in some ways it's very much kind of land grabbing and about power and, and status. And I really had to think about my motivations for naming this after myself. And it really, I felt very sure that it, it wasn't about um, any kind of wanting like personal recognition or status, because my little taste of of, of that actually was that highly unpleasant and not to be not to be pursued <laughs> like in a way I think it's much easier to um be able to kind of get on with your work in a way that yeah I I don't think seeking power or status is is a good idea for its its own sake because I think it tends to have a quite um disruptive and problematic effect on one's life so it, it certainly wasn't that I wanted to like make my name um by calling it after myself but I I do think the the measure is important and I did want to keep connected to it. And I I knew that the only way that um, just because of some of the ways that academia works and those kind of hierarchical systems, that actually the only way I was going to be able to stay involved in that work was to literally attach my name to it. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that what the measure is, is... Um, it's a 19-item questionnaire, really. Um, we have it on a, a digital version and also um, as a, you know, you can use it as a kind of pen and paper questionnaire. And I, I'm kind of doing all of this um, in my own time, so it's not linked to any university academic organisation. So it's pretty badly organised, I have to say, because I'm kind of doing <laughs> it when I when I can. But we are looking for someone to, to kind of um, lead this project when we get funding for it. But so yeah, that's as a kind of caveat. If anyone wants to use it, they can they can um, go on my website, and it's not nearly as professional and kind of slick as I wish it was. But there is, you know, that you can get access to the measure. It's completely open access, 
And the reason I think it's important is 19 item um, questionnaire that measures three domains, connectedness to self, connectedness to others and connectedness to world, which includes nature, but also um, connectedness to a spiritual principle and connectedness to a sorts of universal love and a sense of everything being interconnected. Mm. So it's in a way, it's a questionnaire measuring this kind of expanding lens of connectedness. You almost, you start with yourself, with your senses, with your body, with your emotions, and then you imagine this lens getting wider and wider and encompassing relationships to your your loved ones, but also people you don't know. And then the lens get wider and wider and includes nature. And then this, you know, uh, universal sense of everything being connected. Mm. And the idea of it is that it was my research with people using having psychedelic therapy for to treat depression that I realized from them that from qualitative research that I did that their experience of depression was very much of disconnection that it wasn't just that they were feeling sad as you know it wasn't that depression was extreme sadness it was being very very cut off from themselves others and the wider world and that they were living in their heads it was like they were living in a little prison in their mind with constant rumination going on the whole time and that when psychedelic therapy was effective it was like that lens suddenly broadened out and they came out of that little prison in the mind and they you know they felt themselves connecting on all these different levels and living this expansive feeling of interconnection with the web and it was beautiful for them and i i guess i started to think that lots of different of the mental health diagnoses we have actually um share on a more fundamental level this experience of deep disconnection Hmm. And that maybe the disconnection that many people feel, whether it's through addictions or depression or anxiety or just simply being human right now, that this d- deep disconnection is not, you know, it's not our fault. It's because we live in a disconnected culture. We've been cut off from our roots. And that reconnecting, anything that brings back that reconnection will be so important for individuals, but also groups and also our whole society right now. And that it feels like reconnecting to nature, to each other, is kind of the central work of this moment in time. So I think we need to measure it in order to understand how connectedness is working. Because when I was a psychologist, um, when I was training to be a psychologist, there were no textbooks that talked about connectedness. It was not Hmm. part of psychology. So I think rather than thinking about symptoms of things, like symptoms of depression, symptoms of addiction, symptoms of whatever... If we start thinking about, okay, how do we heal the disconnection at our very core, then this measure can be used in studies looking at mental health interventions, nature um, connection interventions, actually any interventions. And we can start really using the same language of using this measure to understand the things that we do that bring disconnection, the things that we do that bring connection and focusing all our energies as a as a culture on really really investing in all the things that bring connection yeah I, it's so interesting isn't it that that's the kind of the substrate that we're that we're dealing with this, mm. this sense of complete disconnection with anything really much larger than ourselves and so yeah. one of the things that you mentioned when we last chatted was about two other aspects that in many mm. western cultures we've lost and i wonder yes. if you could just mention yes. it i'm guessing from your from your response you know where i'm going with this I one i do <laughs> yeah so i was i was working very, very... I had a kind of consultancy session uh, around a, a team in the University of Auckland hmm. who got in touch and said that they want they were doing a study looking at microdosing psilocybin for people with cancer. And they wanted to see how this would work. And they were going to have a population of Maori people and non-Maori people. And this is in, in Auckland. And they had in their team... Um, some Maori psychologists and a Maori research researcher who wanted to use the measure, the connectedness scale, because it spoke to them very deeply. It resonated with their models of health and well-being. But they said um, that I'd missed two really important items out, and that they would need to include them for their 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 study. Oh. And they the two items that that I had missed out and I really I mean there were many that I've missed out you know it's only 19 items but these were two absolutely central things that I had missed and one of them was I feel connected to my ancestors and the other is I feel connected to my land and their description of 
connection to land is not just you know being connected to nature generally but connected to my land the land of my birth and they see the land as like kind of placenta it's like it gives us life it's like our mother like our land where we were born from so this idea of connection to ancestors and connection to our like our homeland our motherland it so moving to hear that because we are so missing it that mm. the people that had taken part in the psilocybin for depression trial who I had interviewed in order to get the you know it was that qualitative research that really formed the basis of the what's connected in the scale it was so interesting that in those interviews no one had mentioned connectedness to ancestors or connectedness to land because I almost feel that we're just we so haven't it's so not part of our language in the west that even if they had had an experience in the psilocybin experience of it they may not have even really, yeah, it, it, it hadn't kind of crystallised for them. So th- those items have been added as addendum. So um, in the, the validated measure, which has been validated with a large data set, lots of people to, to validate the measure, make sure it's reliable and testing what it needs to test. We have added on these two items uh, that haven't yet been validated, but if people wish to use them, then I, I hope they will, because I think they're incredibly important. It's really moving hearing you talk about that because I think one of the things that is very easy, especially for those of us living in cities, which is increasing numbers now, um, one of the things that's very difficult to get a sense of is a belonging to one's land because often people won't have any access to the land. They'll be in flats, you know, Mm. five or six storeys up or or higher if you're living in a high rise. You might not have access to an allotment or the Mm. land that you might have access to would be shared land. So... You know, for me, the the thing I think of every time I go back to London, as much as possible, I always make time to go back to the Heath because I feel like that land, I've walked it so many times that even though it's vast and it doesn't belong to me, I belong Mm. to it. Mm. And it's this this kind of sense of belonging to without possession of. And we don't really have language around that Mm. in, in many Western cultures. And I think there's something else deeply connected to a sense of home and it's a question that I always return to because I don't really have a sense of deep home it doesn't much of my family has had to flee from various different places on both sides and so it's it's one of these things where I'm very conscious of the fact that if we don't have a sense of home we may not have that deep embodied sense of rest and Mm. safety that you described of the moss part Mm. of the yew tree for instance And so if we can't rest deeply and feel like we belong somewhere, mm. how on earth are we going to stand up and protect it? Because we're not, you know, there's kind of got to, the channels of love have got to be open, I think, for us to grieve and then want to protect what we so fiercely belong to. I don't know what your thoughts are around mm, that. Yes. Yes, belonging. Oh, it's, it's such a, yeah, such a deep yearning, such a, such a deep yearning. And I think, yeah, like this idea of, belong that we belong to nature um rather than nature belonging to us and that when we belong to nature to take to really feel the support of that I think in a way the the first stage perhaps is us understanding that we are nature Mm. and that we belong to nature and that nature's seasons and cycles are innate within us and natural and you know the dark times the light times and that those cycles of decay and regeneration are also within us and that those deep mycelial connections are too and when we understand ourselves as having these layers and that we are we do belong to these these codes of nature I think perhaps that is kind of the first stage and then when we really feel that we can start to manifest and embody it in the way we actually live and then perhaps start changing our structures of our societies in a very small way initially perhaps but just something as small as you know that feeling of um as you say you know walking in walking in a place that feels like you belong to it and you feel that deep sense of roots there or you know just making time to do that but also even once a month getting together with other people and sitting around a fire Mm. and drumming or singing or anything that just brings us back to that more ancient sense of connection to those older rhythms coming out of the the kind of bright lights and fluorescent stress world that we've created and remembering the earth and the roots i think that is the belonging can start 
in a very, very small way in as much as once a month. Um, when we think about the feeling that we're trying to come home to, remember, and it's that feeling of resonance with each other. And when you talk about, you know, walking in nature and I imagine what you feel is something around like this, this place where there's a whole ecosystem connected together underground and it, it is a belonging, all the different plants in the ecosystem, they're working together. There's that beautiful synchrony and harmony there. And it's like being able to come and rest in the web rather than being a lone traveller. It's coming back to the the um, the interconnectedness around us. And not having to do it all by ourselves. Yes. I think the, the weight, the burden of of these huge problems and yeah. complicated and complex problems. There's no way that an individual can shoulder these. It's just not possible. No, exactly. You know, it's really hard to know how to how to shift into that more interconnected way of being because things I mean I think it is changing and I think little things are kind of popping up but overall it's um it's that feeling of like yes coming back into the web can be so supportive but when we don't know to, how to do it we don't have a roadmap we don't know how to it can almost feel more stressful because it's like well we know I don't want to be on my own struggling I want to change the the paradigm yeah. but how and it can feel very confusing and almost you can feel more lonely when you know that you want to become more interconnected, but you don't know how to do it. So, um, yeah, it's not easy to make the transition. Mm. So alongside then the ASA programme, if people are listening to this and they're thinking, actually, this sounds really good, what are some of the places I can start, tools or practices? What's been invaluable to you in in forging the sense of reconnection, maybe even in small ways? Mm. So for me, I mean, I'm at the very, very, very beginning of my journey with it. You know, I'm I'm very much like the ACER process is very much, I'm, I'm, I'm engaging in it as a participant, as well as having kind of written the content, you know, I'm, mm. I'm very much the beginning. And I am, I guess, um, at the start, so where I am at is the, the connection to self part and the connection to self is about for it's about kind of healing healing the times of solo travel individualistic you know being part of systems that push us and are about competition and stress and overworking you know I was a terribly work addicted for a long time and all of that you know kind of competition mindset really so mm. I've been gently healing that so I'd say for that and that maybe is where a lot of people need to begin because before we can become interconnected and almost like kind of re-indigenize ourselves we need to decolonize ourselves and understand the ways that our lives have been unknowingly and not with any malintent I don't think I think I don't think there's some big conspiracy I think it's just the way things have progressed um that we have been hijacked in a way and that it's not a natural way so for that connection to self I think for me it's been music hmm. and most people have Spotify but any way you can access you know a particular quality of music that perhaps doesn't have words but is kind of bittersweet in tone maybe with some cellos or whatever music speaks to you but that feels like you can access your pain and to spend some time as often as you can lie in a room, maybe with a candle, and just allow yourself to listen to the music and to allow yourself to feel everything that you've been holding, um, whether it's linked to individual experiences of pain and suffering or whether it's linked to just recognition of the systems that we've been pushed so hard in and that have hurt us and hurt the, hurt the collective and hurt nature. And just allowing those feelings to kind of come up. So that was my kind of stage one, like mute crying to music I would say it's kind of stage one and then and then after that finding other people who are interested in whatever it is whatever part of this is your interest whether it's kind of if you like planting trees if you like doing some river cleanup yeah if you whatever kind of aspect of connecting whether it's connecting to other people in a more kind of um like a meditation group or something like that um, or even just going dancing, like any way that you can conceptualize connecting to yourself or other people or nature, 
just finding a little bit of time to to do that with the with a conscious intention of opening yourself up to that connection in a way that you're not disengaging with it for your own well-being but for the well-being of, of the group so another thing that I think is incredibly helpful is having some kind of sharing circle um, and in, in ASA sharing circles are a kind of big part of the process but you don't need to be part of a of, you know of ASA to do it just finding some people some friends who you can meet with once a month on a zoom call say you've got an hour divide the hour up between how many of you there are give each other you know five or ten minutes to share from the heart how you're really feeling what's really been going on without any pretense or need to kind of you know impress or taking the mask off sharing from the heart and just witnessing each other and yeah so I think a share group music meditations and then something that really helps you connect to nature in some way whether it's volunteering or um yeah just walking in nature with other people something like that um, would be a good place to begin that's a whole treasure trove of practices <laughs> <laughs> thank you and and so we're kind of coming towards the end of our conversation but I'd love to ask if you bring to mind the sense of what a flourishing future could look like mm. what what comes up for you sharing the work <laughs> one of the things that continually amazes me and one of the reasons I'm not surprised that so many people are so overwhelmed and stressed in- including at times myself <laughs> when I look at the amount of work it takes to take care of a home and take care of the bills and take care of all the other kind of little things that we do in the, the complexities of our lives and our work and you know family commitments too when you really break down all the things that you have to do, we are just, so many of us, walking to-do lists. Yeah. And I think there's something so radical in starting to share the load. So something around, you know, finding, stepping towards these community living in a way, I don't know how exactly it looks, but I do know that we have a communal space for when someone has a birthday. We all, it's easy. You don't have to plan a birthday party go to the communal space, you go there, you're all together, that's the party. <laughs> when you, for, for cooking, for, for meals, for feasting times, you do it on a rotor. So you don't cook and clean and wash up and buy the ingredients for those meals every day, but you take your turn on a rotor. For childcare, you know, there, you know some kind of like creche vibe where people are kind of taking it in turns to, to be with the kids. And it's this kind of sharing of the of the work that we have to do mm. um, so that it becomes, it doesn't stop us from being able to do the important work of imagining, dreaming, changing, revolutionising, building, creating. So once we have more free time, because we are delegating more and sharing the load, we can do incredible things with our time when we're not perpetually stressed and exhausted and burnt out. Mm. Amazing. So a call out to people who are thinking this is a good idea. Maybe you need to get in touch. Yeah. Well, I mean, in the <laughs> and, same uh, way as like transition town, you know, there's a kind of blue, blueprint for transition towns. I can almost imagine like a blue, blueprint for kind of like, you know, building connectedness, like how, what's the first stage? So how, how to do that with the pit? And obviously you need to be living geographically close, like how to start intentionally creating those kind of networks with the people in your area. And I think it's, you know, it's something I'm now that I'm moving on from phase one, which is like self-healing, I'm moving definitely on to the next stage, which is kind of like community building and thinking around, yeah, local groups for these kind of things. Mm, wonderful. And so then before we close, I want to ask you what I'm coming to realise is a bit of a, a rhythm for all of these conversations. How do you orient yourself towards hope on dark or difficult days? Ah, oh, just become a tree. <laughs> That's what's so wonderful about them because trees make sap from mud. They bring in the mud at their roots and they turn it through their bodies, through their trunks. They turn it into sweet sap that is the stuff of life, the elixir of life. It makes the flowers grow and the buds grow and they do it. Just it's that natural alchemy. So I think of things in kind of tree metaphors now, like when things feel really rocky at my roots or there's a storm and I just feel like it's just like I'm standing in a flood or there's a lightning strike, I go down to the deepest layer, which is the mycelial connections deep, deep underground. And I just remember that 
there is so much joy when we come together, even in very difficult circumstances. And that if you go to, I remember once looking around um, the slums in Mumbai, and it was a part of the slums that was incredibly well organised, and it was an amazingly happy and joyous community. And at the time, I was living in London by myself, and I remember looking at that and thinking, I would much rather live here than in the luxurious flat I'm living in, because they have this amazing community. And maybe I was idealising it slightly, but you know, people looked really happy. They they really had each other. And so it's remembering that even in challenging circumstances, like in, in the wartime, people often describe that their connectedness to each other was so strong, the, the, the blitz spirit almost, that even in times of great challenge and suffering, which I think, you know, we are heading towards, when we are connected to each other, our communities, our neighbours, our friends, when we when we are empowered and opened to that, and often times of suffering really galvanise those communities too, it, there's nothing more joyful. So I think when I, in the real deep flood, going deep, deep down to the mycelial connections and just remembering that no matter how hard things get, if we stand hand in hand and really stay open to each other, then there's almost, we might feel in a way that the challenges that are coming bring us a level of connectedness and belonging and community that we almost didn't even know we were missing. Mm. And that in that way, we could find not just solace and comfort, but actually really joy and meaning in the challenges that are coming. So yeah, going down to the root network. Beautiful. Ros, it's been such a joy speaking with you. If people want to learn more about your work, where are the best places to find you? So if people want to use the connectedness scale, which I have already given the caveat of it being quite <laughs> disorganised and a bit slow. And so well, there is on my website, which is drroslynwatts.com, you can access the connectedness scale. And um, yeah, we would love people to use that. And there's also where a directory where people can put their details in if they want to be part of a kind of hub of people all using this connectedness scale so that we can share results and learn lessons together. So yeah, that's the connectedness scale. And then for ASA, it's um, www.acerintegration.com. And yeah, those are the main two places. Amazing. Thank you so much. It's been such a joy. Oh, thank you so much, Natalie. Thank you. It's been really, really, yeah, lovely, lovely talking to you. And yeah, <laughs> what, what, what a joy for me too. Thank you for listening to The Hive Podcast with me, Natalie Nahai. If you enjoyed the show, please do give it a rating and a review as it helps to reach new ears. For more information, you can visit natalienahai.com forward slash The Hive Podcast. You can also reach out to me on Twitter and LinkedIn at Natalie Nahai. My thanks to Caro C for producing. Thank you for listening. And I look forward to sharing more with you in the next episode.